Hello, this is Peter Baxter, Editor of Developmental Medicine and Child Neurology. It's a great pleasure to introduce this podcast. In it, we're going to discuss the review paper by Crystal Ruff, Stuart Faulkner, and Michael Fadings, entitled The Potential for Stem Cell Therapies to Have an Impact on Cerebral Palsy, Opportunities and Limitations, which is being published in the August issue of the journal. It's going to be discussed by Dr. Crystal Ruff and Dr. Stuart Faulkner, who are both postdoctoral fellows with Professor Michael Failings at the Toronto Western Research Institute, University of Toronto, Canada, who are the authors, and by Professor Volney Sheen, Associate Professor of Neurology at Harvard Medical School, USA. Please can we start with you, Professor Failings, to give the background for the review article. Thank you very much, Dr. Baxter. It's indeed a privilege to have been given this opportunity to write this review article. The background is that I had the honor of receiving the McKeith Award in Cerebral Palsy Basic Science Research and gave a keynote address at the 2012 American Academy of Developmental Medicine in Cerebral Palsy. And this review article really stemmed from that keynote address, which focused on the opportunities for applying stem cell therapies as a potential treatment for cerebral palsy. And in that lecture, I really explored the pathologies in cerebral palsy, which are very heterogeneous, and then examined the the different pathologies in um, in CP, which involve injury to various uh, brain tracts, the disconnection in circuits, the demyelination that occurs, and so on, and then described the, the potential opportunity for applying stem cells, as well as the potential limitations. So why this article and why now? Stem cells are very topical, and there there are many opportunities, if you will, the hope, and there is also some miscommunication, if you will, the hype. And what we tried to do was to describe the opportunities, but also to candidly explore the limitations of this technology. And we feel that clinicians in this area are needing to have a very detailed update in the field and that this will help them in terms of their own general knowledge as well as in advising their patients. And in addition, we think that other healthcare professionals in the field would benefit from this knowledge, as would patients and their families and, and caregivers. So this is really the background behind this. In the article itself, we describe some of the pathologies of cerebral palsy, We emphasize the heterogeneity, which adds to the complexity. And we also describe the heterogeneity of cellular therapies and describe the different types of stem cells. We describe some of the ongoing uh, clinical trials that are mainly focused on mesenchymal stem cells, although there have been some um, early phase trials with neural stem cells. And then we uh, talk in some detail on the role of committed neural stem cells particularly from the perspective of influencing remyelination of uh, injured brain tracts. And then we close out uh, the article by uh, discussing some of the future opportunities. What I thought I would do at this stage would be to have the two uh, principal authors on this review, my postdoctoral fellows, Drs. Ruff and Faulkner, to perhaps provide a few comments beginning with uh, Crystal Ruff. Hello, this is Crystal Ruff. So what we aimed to do in this article was to provide a concise and thorough description of the types of stem cells that you'll encounter in clinical practice, 
what they are, what they are not, what they do, and what they do not do. We furthermore went on to discuss their function in injury. We talked about their use in the clinic and in preclinical scenarios. And we finalized by talking about translation. So where are we with the science? Where is it going? And what can we expect from it? I'll pass you over to my co-author, Dr. Stuart Faulkner, now. So in this article, we also wanted to highlight some of the clinical trials that are currently going on in terms of stem cell therapies uh, and their opportunities for new trials for stem cell therapies for cerebral palsy. Again, what's going on in those particular trials, where they're at, what types of cells they're using, and what are the promises and the limitations for those types of trials. And in particular, for further clinical trials, what do we really need to understand from the basic science to be able to translate that into a clinical trial that is both safe and efficacious. So I too want to thank Dr. Baxter for bringing up this timely discussion about cerebral palsy and stem cell transplants. And going through the review, what was very kind of salient to me was that there there seemed to be particular key questions that need to be addressed in this field. And I was hoping that each of the authors here could in some ways provide their thoughts about each of these key topics. Uh, the first uh, in, in particular are with regards to the cerebral palsy, what subtype of patients with this disorder they think, at least in the near future, might actually benefit most from stem cell therapy? Thank you. That's an excellent question and a great way to lead off the discussion. It's important to emphasize that cerebral palsy represents a heterogeneous set of conditions, and truthfully, no one individual with CP is the same as the next person, but patients do fall into certain categories, and we describe these categories, and the classification of cerebral palsy, as the clinicians that listen to this podcast will know very, very well, it classically relates to where all four limbs are involved, so spastic quadriplegia, then there is a spastic diplegia, and spastic hemiplegia, and roughly these are the three commonest conditions which approximately affect about a third of individuals. And then there's a number of other dyskinetic forms of cerebral palsy, which contribute to perhaps 10 to 15% of the remaining cases. It's one thing, though, to classify individuals phenotypically, but if one considers a regenerative neuroscience strategy, such as a cellular-based approach, it's important to have a precise anatomical classification, so which brain regions are damaged. And a lot of this has actually been quite well worked out, but certainly one would want to characterize the individual patient by MRI. In terms of the type, some patients will vary in terms of having a fairly minimal degree of physical impairment and perhaps very mild forms of spastic diplegia with very, very good cognition. And those patients are probably too mildly affected to have the cellular-based therapies be worth it. And then there are other individuals who are unfortunately profoundly injured, where the brain is really very severely damaged. While one might want to try to help such individuals, it's probably not realistic at this point, at least, to address that severe damage. And so we're really looking at moderately severe forms of cerebral palsy that are associated with major degrees of impairment that would limit activities of daily living that would have a profound impact on individuals' independence, but where the the brain is not so severely injured as to to render 
cellular-based therapies in, in, in not as an effective uh, type of a fashion. And so one of the mandates, I think, really that's required as we consider the application of cellular therapies is a close interaction between translationally-oriented preclinical scientists, and this is really what our laboratory represents, as well as, as clinicians and, and imaging scientists in, in, the, uh, in the field. And we have the great fortune of working in a couple of networks in Canada and Ontario. One is the NeuroDevNet Networks Center of Excellence, which is led by uh, Dr. Goldowitz at, at UBC and is grouping together clinicians and scientists across the country. And then in Ontario, we are led by Dr. Darcy Failings, who leads the Ontario Brain, Brain Institute uh, CPNet strategy. And the idea here, again, is to link the clinicians and the imaging scientists. But one of the interesting aspects of just, you know, reading the initial part of your uh, review, I mean, do you think from an anatomical perspective that there are going to be cases of CP with who are going to respond better to the stem cell therapy in terms of just the remyelination component, like in a PVL kind of picture, versus where you describe the uh, scenario where there's been a, a vascular event and there's loss of neuronal cell bodies and, and actually having a replacement strategy? Correct. You've really hit the nail on the head. The type of cellular strategy will dictate how it is applied. And in the article, we focus principally on the mesenchymal stem cells because those are currently in clinical trials. And those types of cells are felt to largely influence plasticity and because they're rich sources of trophic factors and they're felt to also have reparative effects by, by modulating the immune system and by being protective. So those types of strategies are, in my view, probably best used in more of an acute to subacute type of a phase of injury. And the neural stem cells, which are the other principal type of cell that has gotten a lot of attention from scientists, that's really a cellular replacement strategy. And the most successful applications right now in terms of replacing the cells has been to replace the oligodendrocytes and so to replace the myelin. So to look at the remyelination strategy, the classic form of CP, that one would like to target would be severe forms of spastic diplegia where there's marked periventricular leukomalacia, and so injury to the internal capsules and the brain tract. And there, it's felt that there's a significant degree of axonal preservation. The oligodendrocytes are either lost or dysfunctional. And so the concept would be then to go in with neural stem cells, allow them to pathfind in this white matter niche, and then to remyelinate these axons. And we have some recent proof-of-concept data, actually, from a paper from our group that was just published in the Journal of Neuroscience, and this was um, actually Dr. Ruff's work, where we were using a dysmyelinated mutant mouse called the shiver mouse that lacks central myelin. We showed a, a very good distribution of the neural stem cells along the white matter pathways, and they could, could remyelinate these cells. So I might perhaps just, um, while we're kind of talking about these different models, perhaps have Doctors Ruff and Faulkner perhaps comment on the two. We're, we're specifically looking at two models right now in the laboratory. One is a model of periventricular leukomalacia, so an intrauterine growth restriction model, and the other is a model of a hemiplegic CP. So perhaps I'll have Stuart talk first on the IUGR model and and where we see that work going, and then perhaps have Crystal reference the work with the hemiplegic cerebral palsy work. So the model of IUGR that we have is very much related to placental insufficiency, leading to a growth restriction and a degree of PVL. 
in rats. And this is manifested in post-birth in, in a number of behavioral deficits that these individuals show. They are growth-restricted, so their weight is much smaller than normal uh, when they are born. And when we take an MRI of their brain, we can actually see a, a decrease in the myelination of the white matter tracts. And these deficits actually persist for a number of weeks post-birth, um, with some behavioral deficits persisting until adulthood as well. So what we would hoped to find with a stem cell therapy would be to introduce the neural precursor cells in this model that it's both a degree of demyelination but also a delay in development and introduce these stem cells where they would remyelinate the demyelinated axons and which would lead to a certain improvement in both the uh, behavioral outcomes that we see, the uh, histological outcomes and an improvement on the MRI-related outcomes as well. Can I just ask you, how do you achieve the intrauterine growth retardation? So uh, this is done by bilateral occlusion of the uh, uterine arteries at uh, embryonic stage 20, and that results post-birth in a graded effect of placental insufficiency and growth restriction in around about sort of 70% of the pups. Uh, just to, to amplify this also, represents um, uh, really a very productive collaboration with uh, Dr. Uh, Jerome Yeager's uh, laboratory at the uh, University of Edmonton, and uh, Jerry's group has been quite instrumental in uh, developing these IUGR uh, models. And so, uh, Crystal, can you comment on the um, hemiplegic CP model? So, also, in collaboration with Dr. Jerome Yeager's lab at the University of Alberta, we have recently embarked on a hypoxic ischemic injury model, which recapitulates about, as Dr. Failing said, one-third of cases of cerebral palsy. So this is a carotid artery ligation model followed by a period of hypoxia, which results in a hemiplegic stroke. These animals, again, so whereas the IUGR model results from periventricular damage, which affects the descending corticospinal axons. The HI hemiplegic model primarily affects the neuronal cell bodies, but it also presents with a degree of demyelination, which we are hoping to, to target, specifically using our neural precursors, which again differentiate into oligodendrocytes in vivo. And just to amplify, what Crystal has indicated, with the hemiplegic uh, cerebral palsy uh, model, we're also doing this work um, in collaboration with two uh, developmental neuroscientists at the University of Toronto, Dr. Cindy Morrishead and Dr. Derek uh, Vanderkoy, and as well are benefiting from the collaboration of two wonderful imaging scientists, uh, Dr. Ravi Menon and Dr. Mark uh, uh, Henkelman, and in addition, we have ongoing discussions with Dr. Steve Miller's excellent neonatology group. One of the areas that we are also looking at are the complementarity of different types of treatment approaches. And one of the, the treatments that it currently is, is used quite extensively in cerebral palsy is the use of various forms of physical rehabilitation. And it, we were intrigued with the notion of constraint-induced therapy as a potential treatment to influence brain plasticity in the hemiplegic cerebral palsy models. And so one of the areas we're looking at is the idea that this might influence endogenous stem cell production and also could 
this potentially be used as a means to further amplify the beneficial effects of uh, stem cell uh, transplants. So I guess part and parcel to that, I guess a lot of clinicians would then ask, do you all see a, a particular time window from the, I guess, the insult or time of initial injury where you observe a maximal kind of response? That's a, a very critical question, and I think we have a general sense of what some of the time windows might be, but that is clearly a, a critical area that needs to be worked out. In general, one can think of cellular therapies as, as having a number of different types of mechanisms of action. So one is where the cellular therapies might protect the injured tissue, and so have a protective effect. They might potentially influence plasticity. This is probably one of the most potent ways by which mesenchymal stem cells might work, and this is probably going to be most effective early after the injury in the acute to subacute phase, although the exact timing is, is still not as clear as we would like. And then there is the classical mechanism by which one thinks that stem cells have an effect and is to replace lost cells. So this is the main effect by which neural stem cells would work. And, and here, this would be in probably the subacute to early chronic phases of injury. And then the third mechanism by which cellular therapies might work is to influence the environment. So, for example, they might reduce inflammation. Both mesenchymal stem cells and neural stem cells could have an impact there to potentially reduce the impact of a glial scar, which we think is an important area to address. So the time window is really one of the critical issues that needs to be addressed when one is considering how to translate this work. And one needs to actually to consider the mechanism of the cell, the cell type, the pathology of the cerebral palsy, and then to consider the time window effects. And just to, again, reference the previous paper that I alluded to that our group just published in the Journal of Neuro Neuroscience, uh, we looked at the application of the neural stem cells in the shiver or mouse model at various developmental stages with all the caveats of a transgenic mouse model that is really not necessarily a model of a developmental childhood condition, but nonetheless gives us some insights. The best stem cell survival and the best integration was seen right at the time of, of delivery of the uh, rat pup. However, we did see still quite effective uh, beneficial outcomes as delayed as 21 days postnatal which likely is comparable to several months, if not around about a year or so after birth in a human being. So it's not a perfect time window assessment, but at least it gives us a handle that neural stem cells at least could have a, potentially a positive impact in the delayed subacute phase, if not the early chronic phase after birth. So one of the things that strikes me is even though you know, people talk about transplantation of stem cells to replete or replace particular, let's say, neuronal cell bodies, there's always a question that kind of comes into mind that, you know, for instance, to establish connectivity in terms of a cortical spinal tract from the cortex down to the spinal cord, you know, the distance from when a child or a baby is going to be much different than when uh, it was a developing embryo or fetus. And do you foresee kind of in the future where you're going to have to have a particular cell type that's programmed with certain sequences to kind of achieve each of the developmental stages that cell has to go through 
This can then address you know, the types of particular cells one is going to use for transplantation. Right. These are all important clinical uh, questions that arise, and, and certainly whatever we transplant is going to be imperfect. And it's not clear at this stage in terms of whether it's best to simply transplant a committed neural precursor cell and allow it to pathfind and allow it to define its own niche, or is it better to target predifferentiated precursor cells that might make neurons or oligodendrocytes or even astrocytes or blood vessels? And that's really not known. My general sense from a practical perspective and from a developmental perspective is that we probably could rely on the neural precursor cells to pathfind and to define the niche. And then there might be ways to think about altering the niche, potentially with the use of growth factors and other types of approaches. Now, in terms of the distance of regeneration, that indeed is daunting. And what becomes clear is that the further the child is out from the original injury, the more difficult the task becomes because if you're actually dealing with loss of the nerve cells as opposed to dysfunction of the nerve cells, such as demyelination, that becomes more challenging. And if you're dealing with actual cavitation and severe gliosis, now you're dealing with structural barriers to regeneration in addition to the loss of the tissues. And so this becomes a real issue and one needs to be very candid about the limitations um, uh, here. Potentially, one might be able to overcome some of these barriers with the use of complementary biomaterial-based approaches which might form a scaffold and might reduce the glial scarring. But, you know, that, that's going to require a considerable amount of research. We're, we're well away from, from translating this. And so this is, again, why there's been the emphasis on the remyelination, because this is something that we can really start thinking realistically about applying now in the clinic. In terms of the distance of regeneration, that is, that is also a very real issue. Fortunately, however, the mammalian spinal cord is designed with different relay areas called central pattern generators, and it's felt that there are probably at least two central pattern generators in the human spinal cord. There's a well-established one in the lumbar cord that controls locomotion, and then there's emerging evidence that there's probably a cervical central pattern generator that is involved in upper limb movement and has connections with the lower limb. So what, what this means from a practical perspective is that if one can somehow um, innervate the, uh, re-innervate the, uh, say, the, the central pattern generator in the cervical cord, that through descending appropriate spinal circuits that are already intact, you could then activate the distal central pattern generator in the lumbar cord, in other words, acting through multiple relay uh, switches. And, and this is probably how preclinical efforts to regenerate damaged nerve cells and spinal cord injury models work. It's likely that they're not working by long-distance regeneration, but probably by short-distance regeneration or plasticity and then activating these intraneuronal circuits. So that adds some hope that one does not necessarily need to achieve the long-distance precise regeneration. This also, I think, emphasizes the need that once we go into clinical trials, and I'm being optimistic because I, I do feel that the timing is right for very careful early-phase clinical trials, but it emphasizes the need for very intensive parallel animal-based research to address some of the questions that you just can't address in the human context. 
So as a prelude to that, you know, we talked a lot about the different type of cells that one can use for therapy. What are your feelings about the different adjuvant type of therapies, you know, using either delta uh, opioid agonists or hypothermia or epigen? With sure. The trans- so perhaps I might have uh, Crystal and Stewart comment on those. Perhaps it's just an initial overarching comment. I think that ultimately, from a practical clinical perspective, we likely will be using combinatorial treatments, and the idea of using so-called neuroprotective treatments makes very good sense, so kind of as an overarching comment, and I already alluded to the idea of using a rehabilitation as a complementary strategy. So, so Crystal, why don't you start, and, and then Stuart, uh, perhaps a few comments from yourself as well. So, the response to neural injury is multifaceted. In spinal cord injury, there is initial axonal injury characterized by sodium influx. Early hypoxic ischemic injury or cerebral palsy is characterized by pre-ligand endocytic specific cell death and early global acidosis. Further on during the injury response, cytokines and other pro-inflammatory agents are secreted into local microenvironment, and glutamate is released from injured cells, initiating the excitotoxic cascade. This leads to immune infiltration, further secondary damage, which is generally thought to be more damaging than the initial insult in most cases of neurological injury. Lastly, signaling pathways, which are weakened due to demyelination but are still intact, um, particularly those in the corticospinal tract, are often pruned later after injury, after periods of unuse, plasticity occurs, and they often die off in a more chronic phase, leading to further neuronal cell death. Therefore, the most successful treatment strategy is a holistic one, which will target multiple phases of injury, lessening their combined effects. So, for example, our lab is currently conducting a clinical trial in spinal cord injury using Riliazole, which is a sodium channel blocker, which can inhibit the early influx of sodium into the damaged axon, thereby lessening the entire axonal injury response and improving outcome in preclinical spinal cord injury models. I'm going to pass you to my colleague, Stuart Faulkner, to talk about combinatorial therapy in cerebral palsy. Encephalopathic neonates in the acute phase, standard of care is very much therapeutic hypothermia, and that very much um, works by reducing the effects of the initial injury to the brain and and preventing a secondary injury occurring in in the hours, days, and weeks after that. And these work in in a variety of ways. Um, Hypothermia works by reducing the inflammation, reducing cytotoxic cellular injury, promoting uh, repair and regenerative mechanisms within the brain. And other successful strategies in the acute phase for brain injury, other things like the the noble gas xenon, there is also melatonin, which is an oxidative scavenger as well. So a lot of these work at a multifaceted level. Erythropoietin as well as, as, as neuroprotective effects reduces inflammation, reduces apoptosis, and also reduces glutamate release. So very much when we're talking about combination therapies, as Dr. Fellings alluded earlier on, it's very much going to be likely that we would have a multifaceted approach where we intervene in the acute phase, often with standard therapies, to try and reduce further injury to the brain. And then we would intervene at a second stage in the subacute or chronic phase where we'd actually try and introduce regenerative therapies like stem cells to actually try and repair and regenerate those parts of the brain that have remained injured. When I was reading through the review, 
it looks like a lot of the clinical trials done on the spinal cord are run by private companies versus uh, trials run on cerebral palsy are done by various academic institutions. Are, are there different reasons for this? And also, I guess the second question being, what are your thoughts about the actual trials being run? Um, what might we gain from these studies? Right. So thanks for that question. We thought in the article that it was important to provide context in terms of the efforts that are going on right now to translate some of the cell therapies and then where the future would be. So currently, um, uh, the principal efforts, uh, particularly in the United States, have focused on the use of autogenous sources of mesenchymal stem cells. And for clear reasons, this largely is derived from the umbilical cord matrix. And so because of the existence of umbilical cord stem cell banks, this provides the opportunity to have access to this tissue. And the umbilical cord matrix is one of the richest sources of, of stem cells in the human body. And it has the advantages that this is autogenous, so you avoid potential uh, transplant immune effects, and they're a very rich source of stem cells. So it's quite attractive from that perspective. So there are many advantages of the mesenchymal stem cells. For transparency, one needs to be clear that currently, at least, the main focus of these trials is at autogenous sources. It's unclear how well this might work in a non-autogenous circumstance if one tried to MHC match somehow the cellular therapeutic um, transplants. These mesenchymal stem cells really best work as uh, rich sources of trophic factors. And we had an article recently where we compared different uh, stem cell types, uh, specifically mesenchymal stem cells versus neuronal stem cells. And the mesenchymal stem cells are rich sources of trophic factors, arguably the richest source. And I think that these likely will mainly work as a, in the context of neuroprotection to modulate the neuroimmune response to the injury and potentially by enhancing plasticity, although the evidence for actually enhancing plasticity is perhaps not as strong as one might hope for, to be quite transparent about that. But in any event, this is now moving forward. And I would imagine that the reason that this is moving forward kind of at single academic institutions relates to the existence of these umbilical cord stem cell banks, which I would think at many these hospitals and university uh, clinics are, are owned by these clinics, and so they have access to this tissue. Further on in the, in the article, we talk about another area, and this relates to committed neural, neural stem cells. And here you're quite right. The trials here are largely being driven by companies. And this just relates to the fact that these cells involve a considerable amount of additional manipulation. So the umbilical cord stem cells, this is really tissue banking and the application of the tissue banking. The derivation of these neural stem cells involves unique patented processes to derive these cells, and because of the patent protection, they're owned by companies. And the companies have various intellectual property claims around these. And there are some companies that have decided to, to focus particularly in the area of a developmental brain disorders, and there have been some initial phase clinical trials in Batten's disease and in Politia's Merzbacher uh, disease that have really, from a proof of concept perspective, have at least shown the safety and the feasibility of these types of approaches. I guess finally, to kind of sum this up, um, what, where do you think the, the whole field is going in the future, and what are the key uh, points to be made? 
I think that the time is right to consider clinical trials in the area of cerebral palsy. And I've been asked this a few times, and, and of course there are, you know, the skeptics and the advocates. I guess I would see myself as being a skeptical optimist, if you will. And by that, what I mean is that I do feel that the time is right for clinical trials, but I think we're really at a phase now where we can do limited clinical trials really with mesenchymal stem cells and with neural stem cells from a remyelination therapy perspective, because I think that's where the science is currently. And what's required now is a very strong in-parallel effort with animal research to parallel the early phase clinical trials. And, and there are some critical questions. So w what is the best type of stem cell? And how do you make autogenous cells? So if the best type of stem cell is going to be a neural stem cell, how do you get an autogenous source? And can one realistically use induced pluripotent stem cells? How do you make them? Or can you go with direct reprogramming? Is it going to be possible to directly reprogram, say, an autogenous fibroblast or blood cell into a neural stem cell? And then if you can do that, can you make it scalable and practical so that one can derive a sufficient number of these cells? And then, as we alluded to early, earlier in the discussion, what's the optimal time window? Because it's likely that the time window will vary depending on whether you're using a mesenchymal stem cell or a neural stem cell and the type of pathology that you're using. And so here, we really need to be looking critically at the animal models of cerebral palsy. And there's been a considerable amount of very good work that's been done with the animal models. But, but realistically, um, for transparency purposes, there are also some real limitations to the animal models. And so we need to look quite critically at the animal models. How do we improve these? How do we link these? To the, animal, to the animal work. And I think it's also important for healthcare uh, providers and for patients and families to realize is that currently stem cells are an investigational um, experimental therapeutic approach. There is no accepted form of stem cell that is a treatment for cerebral palsy, and it cannot be recommended as a treatment outside of context of clinical uh, trials. And I think that what we've tried to do with this article and with other uh, documents that we have put out there for healthcare providers and patients and families is just to, just to emphasize, again, the, the real opportunities with the stem cells, but also to candidly describe uh, the limitations in terms of what they can and cannot do. Professor Sheen, do, do you have anything you want to add to that, please? You know, I, I agree with everything Dr. Feelings has said. I think this is a really exciting time. I think there are a lot of opportunities with regards to, um, you know, finally bringing some of the basic signs to the, the clinical trials. I do think the aspect of the short-term, how would you put it, lower-lying fruit, where I think it will be easier to uh, perhaps provide more supportive therapy or supportive environment for cells that you're trying to allow to preserve greater function following some type of injury. I think it's going to be a longer-term goal in terms of replacement therapy. But again, overall, I think this is a wonderful time to see as, as the actual different techniques are kind of put together to provide a potential therapy. So we've now come to the end of our podcast time. Thank you very much indeed, uh, Dr. Crystal Ruff, Dr. Stuart Faulkner, Professor Fainings, and Professor Val Nishin for a really fascinating discussion on cutting-edge part of medicine, which we're all interested in. I think we're all constantly asked questions about this by our patients and their families as well. So this will be extremely helpful for, for clinical practice too. 
Just to remind our listeners, the article is called The Potential for Stem Cell Therapies to Have an Impact on Cerebral Palsy, Opportunities and Limitations. It's by Ruff, Faulkner and Failings, and it's in the August 2013 issue of Developmental Medicine and Child Neurology.